Luke 19. I've entitled our time this morning, A Risk-Taking Local Church. We've been just looking at different dimensions of a church, different marks of a healthy church. I've just kind of prayed over what I should preach, no reason behind it, just like, Lord, what do you want us to hear? This Sunday's I'm here, um, and I felt like now Luke 19 is a text that we should discuss and talk about. If I were to say it a little bit differently, I would say this is about old school gospel bravery, old school gospel bravery. But for our topic and title, it's a risk-taking local uh, church. Well, the year was 1620. Um, They navigated 3,000 nautical uh, miles across the North Atlantic. 102 passengers, you might not know this, but of the passengers, there were three pregnant women, 12 children, took a grueling, I mean, it was grueling, uh, two months. The conditions were harsh, cold, wet, miserable. Seasickness was pervasive. The ship was only 100 feet long. You, you think of that many people on there, and there's 27 crew in addition. I mean, that's significant. That's a, it's a large ship, but it's not as large as you might think. But on November 9, 1620, William Bradford landed on Cape Cod with his ship called the Mayflower. And those people took a risk. They were looking for freedom. They were looking to come to the new world. They were looking to land in the Americas at the time, what they called. And they had to take risk. And you sit here today because of those 102 passengers took risk and said, we're going to leave the old world. We're going to go to a new world. And we're going to transform that world where freedom, Declaration of Independence comes later, but freedom will come Um, from under the tyranny that they lived in. And so we sit on American soil and we celebrated around July 4th, right? Independence Day, we we celebrated as a country and as a nation. But it's good to just stop and think, man, 102 people took radical risk. Their lives, literally, kids, pregnant women in two grueling months, 3,000 miles on the ocean. And this is 1620, okay? This this isn't... uh, the, the, the Titanic or any other boat that was made differently. And they were risk takers. And I believe we need to be risk takers. I also believe that taking risk is a biblical notion. It's a biblical concept. There are biblical principles with it, but we don't talk about it a lot. And so I want to bring it forward um, and talk to you this morning about taking gospel risk. I think, personally, most people play it safe. It's easier to play it safe, right? The devil wants you to play it safe. Your flesh wants you to play it safe, right? But God, the Holy Spirit, wants you to take risk. Taking more risk is exactly what the scripture commands of us, but we don't talk about it a whole lot. Now, let me qualify risk. There's good risk and there's bad risk. For example, If you found yourself in Brazil this morning, you were on top of a cliff and you put on a wingsuit without any training or any experience and you just jumped off that cliff, that would be bad risk. That's not bright. You're not trained to do that kind of uh, flying through the air. Base jumping is probably not your jam and you probably, Jerry, shouldn't be doing it, right? You'd think that's kind of dumb. That's bad risk, right? That's not smart risk. Good risk, however, by definition is doing things for others that bring glory to God 
and they're for the good of others. They bring glory to God and they're for the good of others. So if you want a short kind of pithy definition, good risk is defined by when we take it, it brings glory to God and it's good for others. And so taking gospel risk is a biblical expectation and kind of the air we need to breathe in this season, right? And not taking risk, let me say it again, not taking risk is the most risky thing you would ever do. That's the most risky thing, is not taking risk. Well, I'm a golfer on the side. I like to golf. I like to chase balls. Hit balls yesterday with my boy before I jumped on a plane here even. And in golf, they have this term called the mulligan. It's named after David Mulligan, where when you get up to the first tee or any box, if you know, if you're a cheater like I am, then you always have mulligans, right? And so you can take an extra swing. You know, you, you can kind of get an extra swing out of it. If life gives you a mulligan, well, I record for my own benefit my regrets. I have two on my list so far. And um, I thought I'd share them with you. First is I've been way too transactional as a leader. Over my lifetime and my leadership and 38 years of ministry, I look back and I think, man, relationships king. And I built things. I built them well. And so I was highly transactional. And as I look back on my ministry, I wish I would have been more relational. I wish I would have been more transformational and not as transactional. Some of the stuff we worked on even as elders uh, the last quarter here. That was one of them. The second one is this one, the one that's before us this morning. I wish I'd have taken some more risk. I think the flesh... Left to ourselves, we're risk adverse. We just are. I mean, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way we kind of, this way the flesh works. It doesn't want you to take risk. And certainly the devil would not want you to take gospel risk. So maybe not walking by faith would be a risk that we sometimes don't take. We'd rather see it and choose it and know where we're going, right? Uh, defending the vulnerable. Maybe we've seen some, some things happen over our lifetimes and we should have stepped up and said something and we didn't defend the vulnerable. Maybe having a hard conversation, a gospel risk there. Maybe going across the street to your crazy neighbor and sharing Jesus with them. That's risky, you know, it takes risk to do that. And even bringing me in as a part of the family here for a temporary period of time, adopting me is a risk. I, I admit it, it's risky. Um, and uh, so we... If I look back at my life, I'd say, man, I was, I'm too transactional, so I've been working on that, changing my leadership style and thinking and philosophy, and I would say I would, I'm taking more risk. I'm taking more risk at my age, at 58 years old, than I've ever had in my life, um, just because I feel like it's biblical. I feel like it's the right thing to do. You get one life to live. I want to live on mission, and so I'm taking more risk. I'm kind of pushing myself outside of my comfort zone at times um, because my flesh would rather be comfortable. Than, than to be disrupted and to, to be in this kind of situation. So I think I'm on safe ground this morning by saying we all struggle with being risk takers. Spirit-induced gospel risk. But there's a high price to play, pay for inaction. There's a high price to pay when you're not a risk taker in the Christian life. And so I want us to do a little bit of a gut check by looking at this parable, which calls us to take more risk, to not play it safe. You see, risk-taking is baked into the gospel. There's relational risk that comes with the gospel. You adopt a child, like 
we have adopted two children. That was risky for us as a young couple. We're not sure, wow, how's this all going to work out? Are we going to love them like our own biological children? We just had all kinds of questions. But because of the gospel, we wanted to take a relational risk. There's missiological risk, right? If you're going, maybe you've done a short-term mission trip, or maybe you've been on the field yourself, or maybe even like every once in a while you have this fleeting thought, maybe we should move to where? Somewhere in the world and and give our lives to the gospel. But we pull back, and, and that's okay. But you might have thought that that's a part of it, missiological risk. Economic risk, giving your money away for the sake of the kingdom is risky. Every year, my wife and I sit down, and we try to give more and more and more away and live on less and less and less. That's risky. I'd rather be comfortable and not have to think about where my next meal's coming from. But Jesus said, you live by your what kind of bread? Daily bread? I think he said daily, yeah, daily bread. So there's, there's economic risk, there's gospel risk. I mean, talking to my neighbor, my neighbor's crazy. I hope he never listens to this tape, but he's awesome. I love him to death, but he is, he's back crazy, you know? And it just like, it gets, I'm like, oh, here comes Dennis, you know? And he, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's an hour commitment. It's gonna be intense. He's grumpy. He's cussing like a sailor, you know? He only knows three words, I think. And you know what I'm saying? But I love him because Jesus, you know what I mean? I want to, but there's a risk in that. I'm like, Jane's like, Dennis is coming. I'm like, no, you know, I want to watch the game, you know, <laughs> you know, but anyway, so gospel risk and talking to your neighbors, ministry risk, you know, um, going to people when you're not sure something's up and saying, hey, you okay? You know, there's risk in conversation even, right? When we, when we gather as a church. So I just want you to know it's baked into the pie. Okay. It's a part of it. And, and I think sometimes we think of risk and we put it in a leadership category and we put it outside of scripture, but I want to put it back in the scriptures and show you that risk is right. It's good, it's right, and it's beautiful. And I want you to see it um, in the text. Now, we're approaching uh, Luke 19, 11 to 27 is our parable. Um, let me give you a few tidbits um, and then we're going to, uh, we'll look, we'll read it. And then we'll walk through this particular parable. You know what a tidbit is, right? It's like, you know, when you reach in your pocket and you find an old piece of gum with a little bit of lint on it. And you're like, ha, I got one. It's a tidbit. You know, like those are tidbits. These are just a little extras, not meant to be consumed, but just kind of helps you interpret what you're about to experience. So a couple of tidbits about this one. This is a parable. Just to remind you about parables, parables take a familiar story for you and me. They take a familiar story and then they introduce something unfamiliar or something you should be thinking about you're probably not thinking about. So he's taking this very familiar story. When you read it, you're going, ah, pedestrian. But then it's introducing a concept of risk that maybe you've not thought about ever or in a long time, okay? And so it's an earthly story with a spiritual meeting, and it kind of designed to deliver a singular punch. Now, Jesus deployed this apparatus, this parable teaching a lot. As a matter of fact, he's been going on parables since Luke 9. Luke 9. And now we're in 19. This is the last one of his parables that Luke captures. So this is the, this is the, the final one. And this is the beginning of Passion Week. You know, Passion Week is the week Jesus is crucified on Friday, raises from the grave on Sunday. This is Sunday night. They're making their way into Jerusalem. They're 17 miles out when he stops and he starts sharing this particular parable. So we're not into Passion Week per se. We're just the beginning of it. They're entering the Holy City. Now, as you got closer to the Holy City in Passion Week, 
um, there would be a lot of energy. You could, it was palpable. You'd feel it like, man, we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, this is where they're celebrating their freedom from slavery in Egypt. Similar to our July 4th, you know, July 4th evening, the fireworks are coming, the kids are crazy, you know, fireworks are going off, the dogs are hiding. You're like, everything's just going on, right? You can feel the energy uh, in Passion Week. Keep in mind, though, it's a parable, so we don't push details. At the end, you're going to see a real harsh statement. You go, oh, that's a little rough. Don't push the details. It's not meant to be there. It's made to be dramatic. It's meant to take the familiar and, and introduce something that's unfamiliar and catch our attention. Also, when you approach this parable, you might confuse it with the parable of the talents. Two different parables. This is the parable of the minas, both talking about currency. One is in Matthew 25, the other's here in Luke 19. One's at the end of Passion Week, one's at the beginning. So they're different currencies, they're different locations, they're different timelines, and they're entirely different application. The parable of talents is talking about how God has uniquely gifted you and how you use that gift and how you steward that gift for the glory of God. The parable of the miners talk about your responsibility. What are you called to do? If you're going to live on mission, you have to understand the parable of the miners, but you also need to have the parable of the talents to understand how God's uniquely gifted you. Okay? So this is a parable. We orient ourselves. It's a parable. Number two, Jesus here declares his singular priority. And I just want to point to it it's because it's the verse before we're going to read. So look at Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So he now declares his singular mission. I'm coming to seek people out and I'm to save them, and they're lost. Well, the expectations, the messianic expectations are high. It's Passover week. Um, and because of Luke 19.10, his disciples and everybody around him, both the close ones and the crowd, were thinking, it's going down for real. Like, this is the real, like, he's, this is it. He's going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom. And so they now take a misunderstanding of it, which he has to keep clarifying. They think that they're going into the city to take names. They, let's, if you listen in, you really bend down, you'll hear the song, let's get ready to rumble. I mean, it's like that kind of energy. Like they're, they're going, oh, we're, we're fixing to fight. This is wartime. They're girding up their loins mentally. They're getting ready. The expectations is Passover, and the expectations are super high. And so they're ready to go to war because of what he just said. So they think his coming to Jerusalem is imminent and it's the big one. He is coming. He is setting up the kingdom, but he's coming to die. His first coming, his second coming is later in which he returns. But they're confusing. They're blending the two together and they are fired up. You can feel the energy and uh, you can sense that in the text. So when they say the kingdom of God, they're thinking it's immediate it's this week, and we're going to war. That's a helpful piece as you understand what he's about to share. Number three, this is a parable about himself. He tells a story about a nobleman who's going away to a strange country. He's going to take a trip. And so he sets the record straight that it's not the, the big coming. It's the first coming, salvific in nature, but not eschatological in nature. And he sets the record state, 
And what he's going to teach them is this is the parable that teaches you how to live between the first and second coming. This is it. If you want to know what you're supposed to be up to, and it's been 2,000 years, right? If you want to know what you're supposed to be up to, here it is. You're to be taking risk, gospel risk, all the time. These are our marching orders, right? We're to be entrepreneurial with the gospel. We're to think outside the box. He says, I'm coming to suffer and die by the end of this week. They're saying, no, we're going to war. He's saying, no, we're suffering and die. And, then, and when I'm gone, you need to then take up the mantle, take risk, gospel risk, and propagate and expurgate the gospel and build the kingdom. And that's exactly the point of this parable. Now, one final tidbit. There's a scandal that they're all aware of with Archelaus. In 84, Archelaus um, was sent to be a province, to be a governor of a region. But he didn't have Caesar's approval yet. And so he did the classic thing. He acted like a king before he was a king. Well, the Jewish people didn't receive him in 84. They didn't like it at all. So in order to bend their wills, he did a couple of things. One, he, he canceled the Passover, which is like... Canceling Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Kwanzaa, the whole package. Like, he just shut it down, and that hacked the Jewish people off, okay? Second thing he did, he didn't get their attention, so he lit them up a little bit. He massacred 3,000 people. Well, the Jewish people couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand it. But he is not king yet. He has to go back to see Caesar and get permission to be a governor over this providence here. So Archelaus goes back to, to, uh, to, to get the permission from Caesar. Well, when he goes back, guess what the Jewish people do? They said, you know, no, we're going to contest it. They contested his leadership, and so they showed up too, and he never became king. He never became governor of the province. And so this story is kind of embedded, AD 4, now we're, you know, this is AD 30. So it's kind of embedded into their understanding when he starts on this story, it would immediately trigger them to go, hey, that's something familiar. Remember, he takes the familiar and he introduces the unfamiliar inside a parable in and of itself. And so that's what he's doing here. Um, he parallels his own story going on that week with Archelaus's story. It's just a lot of drama. And you're sitting here, you know, a couple thousand years later, and you might not feel the Archelaus story. You might not know about it. This is all historical context that makes this parable dance. It makes it stand up and go, wow. When he's expecting us to take gospel risk, this is a pretty big deal that we're to be participating in between first coming and second coming. Okay? With all of those little tidbits in your pocket, take a peek. Verse 11, as they heard these things, verse 10 of Luke 19 in particular, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, about 17 miles out, right? Walking, full day walk for sure. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, it's going down. He said, therefore, a nobleman, Archelaus, Jesus, he's the nobleman in the story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. So the nobleman, calling 10 of his servants together, he gave them 10 minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. 
But the citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom he had ordered, those servants to whom he had given the money were then called to him that he might know what they had done by doing business for the Lord. Ah, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina, it was incredible, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina killed it, five X'd it, has made me five minas. And he said to him, then you are going to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Conservative, huh? No risk. It's the old way of saying, you know, when your parents might have tucked their money under the mattress, that's basically what he did. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, then you reap what you did not even sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, right? You said you did. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then do you not put my money in the bank? The word bank is money changers. Remember the money changers in the temple? Why didn't you give it at least to the money changers? You get 2%, 3% high yield, whatever. At my coming, I I might have collected it with interest at least. I got something on my return. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has 10 minas. It's not fair. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So the parable of the minus. Two easy points to remember. You have a choice. You're either going to walk by faith or walk by sight. As you think about gospel risk. Let's start. Walking by faith. What does it look like? There's two gentlemen that are introduced into this category and one introduced to the second of walking by sight. Jesus is the nobleman. He's the nobleman in the story. He is the king of kings, as you know. We would be a servant in the text. Um, If you were to push out some of the details, we're professing disciples in every age. Those are the servants in the text. We are represented there. The minas is the gospel, the message of the gospel, and our responsibility to do the gospel. It's directly connected to, connected to Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is, the, that is a mina in this story. He's connecting the two together. One mina is three months' pay uh, in that time. If converted to modern time, about 6,000 a month, okay? Each servant is given one mina, there's 10. Each servant's given one mina. Gospel currency. Again, there's no secret Christians. You're to steward. If you're in Christ and you claim Christ, then you're to 
take your mina and to, and to get a return on that mina, Matthew 28. And you're to invest it while I'm gone. He said, I'm going to go away. Jesus goes away, as we know, in between first coming and second coming. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now, to be exact. And we're to steward that investment. We're to be faithful with the gospel until he returns. We're to be gospel entrepreneurs. Let's call it that, right? Let the free markets reign. Steward the gospel. Let it go. Get busy. Engage in business. Do business. I love what he says there. He says... uh, um, there to, to do business. It means to, it, it's the word pragmatic in the Greek language. Be pragmatic about it. Take action. It's actionable. It's an actionable decision that, that we need to make. Pragma. Engage in doing business. Do something pragmatic for the sake of the gospel. Take action. Don't sit back in silence. Don't sit back and put it in a handkerchief. Just deploy it. Get busy. There's urgency. You can feel it in the text. And it's our responsibility. Okay, then he returns. And verse 15 says there's a day of reckoning. He's going to bring all these servants before him. It's like a little mini shark tank. That's what it feels like to me. He's going to say, hey, how'd y'all do? You know? So Mark Barnett's out there. He's like, hey, how'd y'all do? How, how's, this going, how's this going on? Well, two guys crush it. One, not so much, right? Not so much. Epic fail. So the first guy I want to introduce yourself, introduce you to is not named in the text, but let's call him Mr. Two, Ten Cities. Mr. Ten Cities, and then you got Mr. Five Cities and Mr. No Cities, okay? These are the three individuals in this story which are all going to drive this point of why we take more risk. So Mr. Ten Cities is also dubbed his other name is I Ain't Playing It Safe. That's his other name, I Ain't Playing It Safe. And so he returns, the text says, 10x, 10x on his investment, a thousandfold, crazy good performance. He bought low, he sold high, right? Notice his humility, it's pronounced in the text. He said, Lord, you're mine. He didn't say, hey, my mine, and I've taken this mine, and I crushed it, bro, and now it's 10. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, you're mine, huh? You're mine, Lord, I took it. Our salvation is by grace alone. We know that. This is, we're custodian of a common salvation. We don't create salvation. We can't save anybody. But we're to do something with it. We're to share it with people. We're to share what we've experienced. And this guy returns some what I would call handsome re- returns, right? Just handsome returns. And so he's going to reward him. And he says, well done. Excellent. Now, what do you think he's going to get? A vacation at the sea? Over at the coast? Do you think he's going to take a couple years? He's going to retire early, hang up his cleats. Mm -mm. For your good work, I'm going to give you leadership over 10 cities. You're going to tenfold your responsibility. Because as you're faithful with the gospel and you steward it, God will open more doors and more doors and more doors and more doors for you to share the gospel with more people because you're a faithful steward. He can count on you to at any point, any place, any time, share the gospel with people, right? That's the point of the text. And so he says, man, you are crushing it. You have done well. I'm going to give you more responsibility, not less. You can take a break. No. And it's true of all of us. The older we get, the deeper we should get into gospel propagation. We don't get in our Winnebago's and drive off and go to the coast. No. You do that during the week, but when we're, we're here, we're here, we're all in, right? We're stewarding this gospel message that he's entrusted to us. 
starting with your own family. And we have some folks with some large families. So I'm like, that is so awesome. Well, it starts right there, right? You've got to evangelize your own kids, right? Your neighbors, your coworkers, all of it is a part of this. You're to steward the, the, the message here. You're to make a handsome return in the parable here. And so he rewards this man's faithfulness with more responsibility. He becomes a vice regent over 10 other cities. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Not more rest, not another day off, not more PTO, not retirement, more responsibility. Just note that, just more responsibility as he went. So the king of kings is pleased. It's a blessing. He opens more doors. It's gospel stewardship taking place. This is unbelievable. And you know what I've learned? It is true that if you want to get something done, even around the church house, find the busiest guys and ask them to do it, and they'll get more done. It's the craziest thing. If you need something done, you find the guy that's the busiest, and then you say, hey, could you do this? And he'll say, yep, I can do it. And he just keeps piling it on. And that's just free. It's not in the passage, but that's just the way it usually works. Um, it's just kind of a, the bandwidth. When you, get, when you get something, God gifts you with something, and you deploy it well, you get more of it, and more opportunities come, and it just kind of compounds itself. And it's a reminder to us that we're supposed to crush it until our last dying breath. We don't sit around and watch things happen in Applegate Valley. No, we don't let things happen in Applegate Valley. We make things happen in Applegate Valley. This is what we go back to as being salt and light, right? We're on full display. We're not to sit here and anchor. And this is not a cul-de-sac. We come in and hide. You know, no, we come up out of the ground. We, we, we put our light. We're on a hill. Isn't that awesome? So we light the hill. We say, this is, we're open for business. We're doing gospel business. We're going to steward that. We're going to share the gospel with every single person on, every, on 238 from Grants Pass to where you live, Jerry. I forget. Uh, what another town you know all over the place right like we're just constantly need to be sharing the gospel this is what we do we make things happen and so you want to be you aspire to be a 10 city guy then we're introduced to the second guy in the parable here mr five cities he took risk or mr take risk we'll call it he was mr take risk five city guy he's given one minor he shares He's entrepreneurial with it. He invests, and he turns a profit of 5X, right? And he becomes the five-city guy. He's responsible to his capacity. It's just a reminder to us that we all don't have the same capacity. There's some freedom in the passage. You don't have to be somebody else. You can't be somebody else. God gifts you. He wires you a certain way. He asks you to do certain things that I can't do, that nobody can do. So it's okay. Some of you are going to be 10 city guys, and some of you are going to be five city guys. Some of you are going to be elders. Some of you are going to be deacons, right? Some of you are going to be Sunday school teachers and not deacons. Some of you are going to be over hospitality. Some of you are going to teach women. Some of you are going to disciple women. It's just, it's going to be all over the place. Both guys, five city guy, 10 city guy, both glorify God equally. Both are in the same rewards line. Both are setting aside hay, wood, and stubble for you know, gold and silver and, and, and precious jewels, as 1 Corinthians 3 says, right? Both are in play. And so we just got to recognize that we're not all wired the same. We all have different capacity, and it's okay. It's fine. You may be an eight-cityer. You may be a three-cityer. Your life will glorify God. You're going to answer for how many cities God gives you. The key is, are you using what he has gifted you, right? 
As a stewardship of the gospel, are you taking risk with what he has equipped you to take and to give you? They both glorify God with their life and their time and in the gospel. You're called to be faithful, right, and fruitful, producing. You're not called to just be faithful, take your mina, put it in a handkerchief, and bury it in your farm. No, no. That's not what you're called. That's, that would be counter-biblical, right? You're called. You have capacity. You've been gifted. You've been granted. You're called to be faithful and fruitful. Not just faithful. I hear people all the time say, brother, I'm just, brother Dan, I'm just trying to be faithful. No, it's halfway home. Faithful and fruitful. You're to be producing. There are no participation trophies. Now, I have a 14-year-old. Two years old, we're playing baseball two years ago. His team was horrible. I was embarrassed. We just got drummed every time we played. And I'll be doggone. At the end of the year, we were horrible. We were losers. We got trophies. And I was like, what is this crazy new thing? It was like Acts 17. I need to hear more of this. Like, I don't know. I I just like, my philosophy was blown. I was like, no, they were horrible. And you're getting him a trophy. What are you doing to this kid? He stunk. He's slow. He didn't hit the ball. He didn't throw it right. He dinked it in the ground. Like everything. They were like the bad news bears. He gets a participation trophy. That may happen in the West or in America today. It doesn't happen in the kingdom. There's no just being, I'm in the kingdom. I'm a secret Christian. Kind of laid back. Uh Uh-uh. You have been stewarded the gospel to share it with other people as it has transformed your life, right? You can't just get a participation trophy in line. When you get to heaven, there's going to be no, hey, glad you're here, participation trophy guy. No, it's not going to happen, okay? And so you're introduced to these first two guys, very positive, different in capacities, both taking risk, both crushing it, 10-city guy, 5-city guy. And then we're introduced to no-city guy. His, um, his name's Mr. Inaction. Handkerchief guy. We'll call him handkerchief guy. That sounds better, doesn't it? A little cooler. Handkerchief guy. And we're introduced to the third servant here in, in verses 20. Then another came saying, Lord, there's, here's your mina. And it, he said, it, um, it's in a handkerchief. It kind of feels like he's like presenting it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like his wife cross-stitched, you know, for, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord on that handkerchief. You know, he's like, bang, look at this bad daddy. He's like, look at my minor. Didn't do a daggone thing. Just look at that minor. Woo, you see it? That's what's happening in the text. And Jesus is like, what? Well, hold on. That's crazy. So he wasted his opportunity. He didn't invest. He took no risk with the gospel. He kind of paralyzed. He was reckless, right? The other guys were like, careful. He played it safe. They weren't playing it safe, right? It's, it's kind of like change. Change is like that in a church. You know, I do this a lot, so I get a lot of blowback all the time because I go in because I'm there to make changes and help make and facilitate hopefully good changes. But we don't like to take risks. We like to keep doing the same things over and over and over again and expect a different result. And someone rightly said, that's insanity, right? We can't keep doing that. So we make changes and make edits. We take risks. Just like the elders took risk in bringing a clown like me in, right? But that was a big risk. So they, we do that kind of thing. Well, this guy says, I'm taking no risk. I want no change. Status quo the rest of my life. I'm just going to keep it, keep it low, right? Low and slow. 
He's a professing disciple, right? But it's clear in the text his kind of works defy him. Now remember, the devil and the flesh are risk adverse. They, they don't want him to take any risk. They, would, they love the handkerchief. You know, I mean, they probably helped knit that handkerchief. You know, they, they, they love the handkerchief. But he refused to do hard gospel things. He couldn't bring himself to pull the trigger. Um, he didn't share the gospel with others. Um, he, he said it was everyone else's responsibilities. It's the pastor's responsibility. That's why we pay that guy. He's supposed to witness to everybody in Applegate Valley. That's why we pay him. No, it's your job. He's just training you to do your job really well, right? It's the elder's job. No, that's not how this works in the kingdom. It's different, right? Different rules. And so he doesn't really, if I were to assess him, I feel like he doesn't have a gospel constitution. Like he's just not... He's not dialed in. He doesn't understand why he's here. He doesn't understand what he's supposed to be doing between first coming and second coming, right? Well, a church not taking risk, to me, is the riskiest decision you could possibly make as leaders and as people. And so he calls him into accountability. He produces the handkerchief. He's thinking he's, thinking he's going to get applauded for like, this is amazing what I'm doing. He thinks he's going to get applauded he didn't lose a penny. That's his position. I didn't lose a thing. These other guys took massive risk and they almost lost it all, but I know they won at the end, but I, I, you know, I, I didn't take any risk. He's very conservative. But Jesus says, you're not conservative, you're rebellious. Whoa, there's the twist. You're not conservative. You're actually rebellious. You know, there was no... For me to live as Christ and die as gain in this guy. It just wasn't. And actually, it's, he's become disgraceful. Look at verse 21. He said, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. So he gets busted, right? He gets called out. And what does he do? He misdirects. He misdirects and says, well, the reason I didn't invest and the reason I didn't take risks because I was nervous because you're a severe man. You reap where you do not sow. You sow where you don't reap. And it spooked me and it creeped me out and therefore I didn't do anything. And he's like, really? Well, let's just take that on face value. Suppose I was a severe man as you say I am. Wouldn't that be more severe than what I'm about to say? Like, you should know that I'm a severe man. That would just kind of play itself out. I would be austere, right? You're, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And so he claims that he's hard-nosed, demanding, harsh character assassination. That's what he's saying about this nobleman. You blame others rather than saying, hey, it's on me. It's my bad. I didn't do anything with the gospel. I've been kind of silent lately. I've been lame. He said, you frightened me. Well, the fear of man is a snare. He said, you scared me. He scared me right into apathy. You scared me right into paralyzation. I didn't want to do anything with the money, Right? And begins tearing down others. He's acting more like Judas than Jesus. He's sitting in the grandstands. He's sitting on the sidelines. Do nothing. So-called disciple of Jesus. So-called steward of, of this minor. He loved the indicatives. He loved to sit around, talk about who he is in the Lord. What he's, what he's experienced. But he didn't like any of the imperatives. You got to go do something too. So risk-free living, Jesus said, is not gospel living yet. Come to find out. Taking risk is a part of the gospel. It's baked into the gospel. Your unbiblical thoughts, his unbiblical actions, 
make you wonder. You should examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. I mean, you should, it should cause us to pause. If there's inaction, a pattern of inaction, one should question, like, what is going on in my life, right? I should question my relationship. I should question my relationship to the nobleman. I should question everything here. I'm making, maybe I'm making God into my own image. That's scary. Maybe. So it begs the question, can you be in Christ and silent about the gospel? Jesus says no. No bueno. It's not good. Your silence is revealing. You need to search your heart. I can't search your heart for you. You have to do that, but you should be suspicious based on this passage of scripture, and you can throw up a thousand excuses like he does, but you should be at least suspicious of what's going on. Greater responsibility given to all the other guys. This guy feared, feared the leader. He feared him. He's hiding his mina under the bed in a handkerchief. He's wrapping his religion in a handkerchief. He's wrapping the gospel in a handkerchief. So what does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 22, and we'll wrap up. And so he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. Strong words here. I don't know about you, but when you read them, remember it's a story, so don't push the details. You say, God's calling people wicked and get all weirded out. Don't be weird. There's no need. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put your money in the bank? Give it to the money changers, those clowns at the temple that Jesus overturned their tables. So same word. At my coming, I could at least got, you know, percent, two percent, three percent, depending on what the market is at the time, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the minus. And that's always the case. Find the guy who's crushing it and ask him to do more of what they're currently doing. That's the principle. That's what it does. But that's the, that's the, the risk-taking. When you're risk-adverse, you lose tons of opportunity with the gospel. You lose all these open doors that the Lord would open for you. He strategically placed you on that farm, in that community, in that area, at that job, seeing these houses. Whatever it is you do, you're doing it, right? He's trying to dislodge all of us, starting with myself, from our passivity. He says, you wicked servant. You were indifferent. You lacked empathy for others. You were hiding the gospel. Remember um, when we looked at the, the salt and light, when they hide the light of the gospel under the basket? Nobody gets a lamp, puts oil in it, hides it under a basket. That's exactly what's going on here. And in between the first coming and second coming, we are going to go berserk with the gospel. We're to be crazy trained about this. We're to be telling everybody, Harvest Festival, we preach the gospel, Right? That's what we're going to do. Like, this is just what we do. We do hard gospel things. We have hard gospel conversations, right? The minimum, you could have given it to the guys at the chintzy bank. It's a reminder of the high cost of inaction and living off mission. I want us to live on mission as members and ministers, both synced up, elders synced up, living on mission right? The other guys are looking around and they see what Jesus does and they're big eyed. They're like, what is he doing? Taking a guy with 10 needs 10 more. That's ridiculous. Like, that's not fair. No, he, he didn't do what he was called to do. He wasn't responsible. That's not fair, really? And negligence and apathy are never rewarded. 
those who proclaim Christ, they'll get more opportunities to talk to people. They'll get more, they get to steward more. And God is moving in the world, with you or without you. He just wants to do it with you. He's placed you here. You're here. I can't reach Applegate. You can only reach Applegate. I can't reach Grant's Pass. Only you can reach Grant's Pass. I can't reach Bedford. Only you. You're here for that very reason. What are we doing with our minor that he's given us? The gospel goes out from this church. It radiates right out from here. Can it be done more? Probably. Can we do better? Probably. That's what this passage is encouraging you to do. To step up. Let's do this. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is your mission. This is why you're on planet. This is, you know that we've talked about this over and over and over again in the last six months. And then there's a note, a hint, a whiff of judgment at the end. It's just a story, a little drama. And think about this as Jesus, and think about those who are going to reject him on Friday, and they're going to kill him. Like, they didn't like the nobleman, they certainly didn't like Jesus. And there's judgment. For you to reject Christ, is, he's going to reject you. And nobody ever shares, shares that anymore, but that's the reality of it. If you reject him, he rejects you, right? But instead, let's bring people the gospel. Let's bring them the hope of the gospel, that God loves, sin separates, Jesus saves. It is as simple as that with your neighbor. God loves us. He sent his own son to die for us. Sin separates and Jesus saves. That's the gospel. That's all you gotta know. That's enough, sufficient enough, coupled with your testimony of what God's done in your life and you're an evangelist. Welcome to the team. It's as simple as that. So, let's just talk through a little bit of application. We're gonna pray and go right into the Lord's table. Take more risk. I regret that I have not done that. Shamefully, sometimes I haven't done it. Um, between the comings, first coming and second coming, it's about work. We do hard gospel things. Remember the high price, as you can see in the text. You can feel it in the text. There's high price for inaction. Fourth, you're accountable to Jesus. You're accountable to King Jesus. He is going to judge you, right? You know there's a judgment day coming. And it's either going to be hay, wood, or straw. Or it's going to be gold, silver, or precious stones. I hope it's gold, silver, precious stones, right? The purpose of this passage is for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone we can possibly come in contact with. And that's why I'll end where I began. Just old school gospel bravery. I just like it. Just like those... Puritans, 102, left the old world and came to a new world so that you can enjoy even sitting here today because they took some risk. And Jesus is saying that same risk is in the gospel. And that same risk is something we need to take the responsibility and bring into our lives and into our families and, and deploy that risk. You know, I remember um, my boy was real young. We had this pine tree in our yard in Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, I'm, I, boys climb trees, you know. And uh, his mom, you know, he gets two limbs up and she's squawking. Ah, ah, you know, Cam, I'm breaking your nose. You're going to get a cold from pine straw? Like, come on. Like, just, I'm like, baby, come on, you know. I just remember one day, I look and I, the, he goes, did you see where Aiden is? And I was like, he was at the top. 
you know? And I was like, I, so I had a whole session on risk is good. That might've been bad risk, you know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, well, I don't, I don't want you to be like my wife squawking at two branches, but I don't want you to be back crazy at the end top of the tree. You know what I'm saying? There's somewhere in the middle there. That's where we need to land. All right. All right. I'm going to stop sharing stories because I'm going to take away from the whole point of the passage here. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. This text, this parable, man, it's a stunner. Um, grateful for it. It's got all kinds of flavor, direction. Man, I just pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of uh, the gospel. And um, there'd be some old school bravery in here and that you would use this church to be a light on a hill, a city on a hill for the sake of uh, the gospel and that we would be a risk-taking kind of church. And we hear story after story after story of how people's lives were transformed by the power of the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.